black preachers who are, are racist in their hearts. Uh, they, are, they are not called by God, but they've been called by their mama. The Jesse Lee Peterson Show is the only program in existence which deals straight up with black Americans. So-called civil rights leaders want them angry, dumbed down, and demoralized. It's not the leaders that blacks need, but good fathers and mothers. Welcome to the show. My name is Jesse Lee Peterson. Thank you so much for tuning in. I do appreciate it. I want to hear from you, your comments, uh, opinions about the show. We do appreciate them. Whether you like it, whether you agree or disagree, uh, let us hear from you. You can email me or uh, give me a phone call. I, um, I'm interviewing someone that is, uh, to me, is a very interesting person, so I think that's going to be very enlightening to you, <coughs> um, Pastor Micah Decker. He's with Beyond the Wall Prison Ministry. Thank you, Michael, for coming on. Amen. I'm glad to be here, brother. You know, before I get into Beyond the Wall Prison Ministry, um, I want to know how long have you been a Christian? How long have you been a Christian? Uh, just almost 10 years. 10 years. Yeah, I knew of the Lord longer, but to be truly in a relationship about 10 years. And when you say you knew of Him, what do you mean by that? I had... Uh, gone to church, had learned some things about God. I had uh, walked, I thought, with God, but I never had a relationship with Him. It wasn't personal. <clears throat> and when you say you thought you walked with Him, what made, you, what, what made you think that you was walking with Him or had walked with Him? Because I did the, uh, the thing that most people think. I went to church and uh, went to an occasional Bible study, uh, prayed occasionally and that type of thing. But I certainly learned when I finally got in a relationship with him that I had not known him for most of my life. Was there a point when you realized <coughs> that you wasn't walking with him? Yes. And, and what was that? What, what uh, when I realized that the uh, things of the world were more important to me than he was. I looked to the world and money and cars and homes and uh, that type of thing rather than God. Yeah. That was my first choice. And, and what brought you to the point to... what? brought you to the point that made you realize money and things are not the answer? I think more than anything else, Jesse, uh, it was the peace that I'd never had in my life. I was, I was in my mid to late 40s, and I still had not found that peace that surpasses all understanding. Right. And I had to, uh, God had to break me, and I had uh, run a pretty uh, wild life most of my life. Give us examples. Of, I know you have a book out, and I do want people to get a copy of it. Give us examples of what you mean by wildlife. Well, I, uh, I constantly strive to make more and more money. <clears throat> I lived all over the world. I worked as an enforcer, <clears throat> excuse me, and a hitman for one of the largest mafia organizations in the world, the Cecilia Falcone family. Really? And uh, did that for a long time. Uh, did a lot just in general crime. I did a lot of uh, things that were wrong. Spent a lot of time in prison. I spent almost 25 years in prison before I started seeing the light. What was the one thing that caused you to get into crime? Do you know? Money. Money. The opportunity to make a... The first offer was to make a million dollars in three months. <laughs> At what age? Uh, 24. Really? And it was just hard to resist that, huh? Absolutely. That's amazing. Um, have you ever been at a point when you were, thought you were going to die or, uh, or I don't, I, were your life on the line at any my point? My life was certainly on the line many times in what I was doing in, in, in my profession, but 
death was never something that scared me or that I always concern, you know, like many young men that are in that vein, they think they're bulletproof. Right. Know, a lot of the, the men on the street, they That's think, right. oh, well, it may happen to somebody else, but not me. But finally, I came to that understanding because my breaking point was going into a concentration cell in Guanabo, Puerto Rico, and when they stripped me naked of my clothes and pushed me into that cell, I knew that suddenly everything that I thought was part of my life was not. How long were you in the cell? Um, I was in that cell, that concrete box, for 13 months and 26 days. Wow. And what was that like when you were sitting in that cell? What, I mean, what was it like? It was the ultimate in loneliness. Cold, dark, uh, no light, a hole in the floor was the only facilities. There was no sink, no shower, no bed. I had a blanket and was naked in that concrete cell and nothing else. So did you find yourself talking to yourself? and? Uh, uh... A lot of inner reflection, inner, inner right. uh, communication, and I'd been there about four months when I knew that my life was about to change because th that morning when I woke up in July, um, in fact, uh, this month, I was in uh, Puerto Rico, and, and I knew that there was a breaking in my spirit, and when that spirit began to break, I knew that that was the voice of God saying, Michael, I call you into my kingdom, but you cannot run from me again. If you do, I will turn my back on you. So, I mean, during those days, did you, were you talking to God or thinking about Him more? Yes. Or, I see, and that's what brought on the change. Absolutely. The and even uh, scriptures that I'd read and really never memorized, He brought back to my memory, that, that He put it back into my spirit and my consciousness, and I began to talk to Him and pray to Him. And daily, He began to transform the inner man in my heart, in my spirit. And when I was finally set free of that concentration cell, he allowed me to begin to read his word and study his word and consume his word. And I knew that finally it wasn't about religion. It was about relationship. And yeah. he set me free. So once you left the uh, concentration cell, did you leave jail period? Or no. It just took you went out in, of the cell? Went, went into population. Oh, I see. And, and I was what in, was that like? Were you, so let me ask this. When you went into population, did you go in as a different man then? As a Christian, yes. or a man that believed in God, yes. And so, what was that like for you being in jail after that? After it was totally jail? different because the way that I had conducted myself and the way that I had survived in the prison environment was always with strength. Right. That uh, the fact that Physical I was physical strength. Right? Yeah. Okay. That I was large in the black belt in martial arts and so forth, and had been an enforcer in the mafia. That that reputation carried me through a lot of situations. And if something had to happen in violence, I took care of it in violence. And suddenly, everything that normally I would have taken care of in violence, right. I took care of in prayer. <laughs> and so if people tried to intimidate you in the population there, you would pray about it rather than fighting about it? That's right. In fact, I had only been in population four days uh, when the first test came. And I had uh, gone to one of the lieutenant's office uh, for... Uh, they were just doing their general consensus that they occasionally pull somebody out of a cell after you've been in a concentration cell and see, you know, what are your thoughts, what are your feelings. And as I was coming back in, two of the guys in the cell block had lit my cell on fire. And it was burning <laughs> wow. as I came into the cell block. There were flames coming out of the door. And uh, there was an instant rage that went on inside of me. And then at the same time, it was God's voice saying, no, you speak my truth. And so I yelled this message, 
Whoever lit this fire in my cell, God will lit a fire in your soul and it will be ten times as intense as the inferno you caused in my cell. And then they went on immediate lockdown and when they uh, went on lockdown, about 15 minutes later, they came in and two guys started dragging their stuff and walking out through the cell block. And because the two guys, the fear of God had, even though they didn't know God, His presence was so strong in there that they feared their life and they left the cell block. And so, were the guys, uh, I mean, were they teasing you later on because here's this big guy, rather than fighting back, would mention God? And did you feel embarrassed by it if it happened? I didn't feel embarrassed, but uh, there was times, there was an intimidation factor there that I, I would communicate with God, God, I'd like to handle this the old way. And he'd say, no, you will only handle it my way. And so, did you feel that God gave you a new nature? Absolutely. A new nature. A transformation. And how would you describe that new nature? Um, Focused on light rather than darkness. Focused on His will rather than my will. Allowing His word to generate a way of life and a way of speaking in me that was totally different than it had been a few days, few weeks, few months before. Are you surprised at that? I was totally surprised then, but the amazing thing is I have been finally set free and out in public now that I go back in the jails and prisons. It's an amazing journey because I remember those days of incarceration and I see that transformation taking place in men and women across this country. How long were you in the population before you were fi- was finally released from jail? Uh, three and a half more years. Really? Yes. And it, did you start a ministry within the jail? Started ministry. We uh, the first Bible study and church service that had ever been in Guanabo, Puerto Rico, began. Uh, then, when I was transferred to uh, Florida to FCI Miami, I was doing a Bible study uh, there in in the uh, holding area. And then, when my final destination uh, was going to be Beaumont, they sent me to the transfer facility in Oklahoma. Uh, many people, Jesse, don't realize that there's an airport in Oklahoma City, and the only thing that flies into that airport, and it's a commercial airport are planes full of prisoners from all over the world. It's called, that's where the name Con Air came from. Oh, okay. it's, it's U.S. Marshals flying confiscated planes that have been uh, 707s, 727s, 747s, and these have been confiscated in drug raids, and they now are used by the U.S. Marshal Service to transport federal prisoners all over the world. Mm-hmm. And you actually fly in, and there's a, a turret that comes out just like in the regular airport, <laughs> and you go off, but Everything inside is U.S. Marshals and chains and bars. That's amazing. Um, <clears throat> were you raised by both parents, father and mother? I was raised by my mother and four stepfathers. Four stepfathers. Oh, she married four times? That's right. The last one, which came in my life at age nine, was a very violent alcoholic. Were all four of the men violent toward you? Toward her and toward myself. Toward yes. you. Um, and did your mother ever try to... I mean, help you deal with those men, or there was nothing she could do about it? Most of the violence she was not aware of. She saw, of course, some of the violence, but most of the violence was, uh, was originated uh, from the drinking and, and came against me in times when she wasn't there. You know, a lot of, uh, I work with young men, and a lot of boys don't have anyone to talk to while going through that stuff. They, I, mean, I don't know if they don't trust people or... And also, there are no adults who go to them and say, you know, how is your life going? Anything going on that you need to talk about? Did you have anyone to talk about during those days? I mean, no. talk to during those days? No, I, I bottled it all up and crammed it down inside. 
And so uh, you develop a lot of rage uh, in that, huh? Yeah, I used to fight four or five times a week while I was in school. How did you feel about your mother not protecting you from that? That didn't really bother me uh, because my silence was more to protect her oh, I see. than anything else because uh, the warning I got from the stepfather was if you, if you tell her what I've done, I'll beat her the same way. Oh, okay. And did you know your father? My real father? At a time. He was a professional basketball player and had left when I was young, about two and a half years old, uh, had kidnapped me once, uh, and then they found me and brought me back. And oh, he tried to get you from your mother? Yeah, and a couple of years later, the same thing happened. He kidnapped me again, and they found us in Colorado, and they took him to jail and took me back to Texas. And well, at least he made an effort to get you. Yes, he did. Do you wish they, that they, uh, the law had left you with your father? I've, I've always wondered what that has been like because he was, uh, he certainly wasn't a Christian man, but uh, he was a hard worker uh, yeah. and loved life. He was a great sportsman, a great athlete, and I always wondered what my life would have been like if I'd have stayed with him. Yeah. That's too bad that the law tend to take the side of the woman all the time, most of the time, rather than considering the father. Because I think that a father make an effort to be with his children he should have the right to be with them. Amen. No About 85% of the men and women that I see in prison are come from single parent yeah, homes. About 85%. Right. And because of that is a result about 88% of them were either addicts or alcoholics. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you're, so you're out of jail, and what, what happens to you once you get out of jail? And this is the last time you were in jail, right? Yes. What happened to you once you walked out of jail? The first thing was is that I felt no more freedom after I walked out of jail <laughs> that I already had inside. Oh, that's good. Because that's truly good. God had set me free. And my sentence, as I, I stress to the men and women in prison today, my sentence had changed from a sentence to sanctuary the day that I truly began to have a knowledge in relationship with God. And once I was out of prison, he had already set me free, but then he gave me the freedom to begin to worship. And I walked straight into a church and told the pastor, Pastor Randy Bird at Barn Church in Hereford, I said, I just got out of prison. I'm looking for a church home. And he says, well, then you're home. And I said, is there anything that I have to do to join your church? He says, do you know the Lord God mm -hmm. as your personal Savior? Is Jesus your personal Savior? And I said, absolutely. He says, then you've already done every prerequisite to join our church. What's your purpose in life? I think my purpose is to go back. Uh, the destiny that God put on my life was to go back into the jails and prisons and bring that message of freedom, bring that message of changing not only knowledge of God, but relationship with God, and to strive for excellence to the men and women that are incarcerated, which is now approach, approaching four million people in the United States, and, and get that message out that He is the only answer. You can't beat drugs, you can't beat uh, alcohol, you can't beat crime, you can't beat anything unless you walk in the presence of the glory of God. Most people are not going to have that same experience that you had sitting in that little you know, room there. How do you get people to truly come to God and, and, and allow God to cause their life to change? Because a lot of people confess God. They go up front, I believe Jesus died. But when you look at their life, you can tell them not change. How do you get them to truly change? I think the greatest thing, Jesse, is that they, not only that uh, revival experience, uh, you know, you can go in and do a big revival s service with great praise and worship music, and in the essence of the moment, men and women come, like you say, and give yeah. their life to Christ. Yeah. 
but it's in the daily, weekly, monthly, yearly discipleship yeah. that takes that ultimate uh, planting of the seed and opening up of the plant. You know, the tree begins to grow the day that they give their life to God. But it's that, that discipleship in the Word that waters and feeds that, that tree so it begins to grow strong. And when you say discipleship, you mean that the person needs to read the Bible more or you need to fellowship with them? What do you mean by discipleship? He needs to be in the Word every day. He or she needs to be in the Word every day, going in prayer. They need to be in Bible studies and fellowship groups in their cell block, in their cell, in their prison. Men and women need to volunteer into the facilities in their communities so they go in and outside they see people that still care, are willing to listen and willing to love. One of the keys in, in prison ministry is kind of like the Kairos movement. Listen, listen, love, love. And when these men know somebody truly loves them and truly will listen, their life begins to change because they are encouraged as they are discipled, guided through the Word of God, guiding into the principles of changing their life and going on to a new existence. So as they're doing this, there's a change taking place within them, within them. Even their physical being, their physical being changes. I have watched so many men and women, and especially in some of the MAX units, that these men walk into a three or four day revival and their first day, their eyes are black. Literally, there's no pupil in iris. There's just a black color to their eyes. They are so demon and spirit uh, right. filled and watch that day by day the Holy Spirit chips away at that old crusty wall around their heart and finally there's a breaking through into their spirit and when that breakthrough comes their voice changes, their speech changes, the vulgarity goes out of their actions, their body demeanor changes and they are a transformed person. I mean God, I mean the essence of the word and phrase in the Bible of born again is truly seen physically. What, what do you do with those men that when you go back into the prison, they don't want to hear from you? You know, they sometimes, I guess they're forced to come and listen sometimes, right? And they're acting up in the media. How do you deal with that? Well, I think probably the, the greatest witness is when you're going into the H3 cell blocks where there, there's no movement. The men and women in H3 cell blocks are locked up 24-7. Now, they do get out 30 minutes a day for what they call rec time. Right. Some of them one hour a day. But in those cell blocks, they can't see each other except through a little graded screen. And the only communication is yelling cell to cell or down the cell block. So there's constantly a, a great volume of noise. And when they see the same person, same group of men or women coming into their cell block over and over and over, and across the cell block or down the block, they hear somebody, all these screams for months and months and years and years, and suddenly this man's singing praises to the Lord and so forth. It's a witness of God's power in them and a testimony uh, coming out of one man into the other. And then they begin to see, and there's a calming. The Spirit calms that cell block and side to side, and you begin to see men talking cell to cell. They can't see one another, right. talking in the Spirit, talking the Word. I'm reading this scripture, and they're reading to one another. And in these little bitty checked grates, they can only get this part of their finger out of that little grate. And some of the most powerful things that I've ever seen is when you walk in that cell block, and you've got a man sticking that much of his finger out, and you put your finger against his, and you begin to pray, and that's like you've hugged him, you've embraced him, you said, I love you in Jesus' name. And then, after many months in those cell blocks, to walk down that cell block, and as soon as you go in the door, every block, 
has that finger sticking out the door, waiting for prayer. That's amazing. And that's what it's all about. So this is really personal to you, huh? Very. Me and Elijah. Yeah. There's a, there's a feeling that happens there that you can get nowhere else in life. Do you ever uh, hear back from the guys who you help and they get out and volumes? They, they report back and, and what do they say to you? Um, big thank yous, big hugs. Thanks for for telling me the truth, for telling me about the Lord, for for giving me a chance at final freedom. Um, the first man that ever walked out. Um, that after the ministry had started beyond the walls, the first man was Tony Big Dog Parker. And Tony was a black gang leader. Uh, and he, he gets his name Big Dog for real because right. he has uh, <laughs> 25, 26 inch arms and bench presses about 650 pounds. So, wow. So, so he's so, a big dog. So, yes, he was. <laughs> but anyway, um, to watch him come out and, and get married and, be, and get a job and, and get, be a homeowner and go to church and be a man of God and, and a pillar in the community and begin to be a leader in the community, um, that's the thanks from God. That's the encouragement and the fire in my belly to keep going back. And men like him, uh, women like him, continually over this last six years, I've watched walk out of prison and be a success, not because of what I did, but what Christ did. That's right. Have you ever, I, I know you have a program here on Primetime Christian Broadcast. Um, have you ever interviewed any of them as a testimony to it? Absolutely. Right? Yeah, oh, good. yeah, the very first one was, was Tony. Oh, good. So if people should watch your show, will they get a chance to see some of those testimonies? That's right. Yeah, That's several great. of the men and women have come down and given testimony. And one of the ladies that just finished doing 10 years in the penitentiary uh, just got set free. She just got authorization, and I'm going to bring her down in August good. and do some filming as well. You know, these people uh, in the prison system, they get a chance to hear other ministers too. You know, other preachers come through. That's right. And those preachers don't seem to really help them. What is different uh, about your ministry? What is different between your ministry and theirs, other preachers? I think many a times, most of the men, they've, they've got a, a preconceived idea that if somebody hasn't been where they've been, they don't speak the truth. Oh, a I lot see. of times. So if they haven't been in prison ministry for a long time or they haven't been a prisoner. And one of the things, especially in Texas, that, that I do is I, when I go in and I'm in a new prison, I say, my name is Pastor Michael Decker. My TDC number is 564488. Oh, okay. Instantly, so they can relate to you right that's away. Right. That's right. And there's a camaraderie there. And I, I know the hand signals. I know what they're saying in, in gang talk. I, I know their language, their prison uh, little things that they say. I may speak something that they know, well, he wouldn't have known that except to, that he had been in prison. Right. So there's a camaraderie and a bond. That. That's great. Do you have fear? Uh, to go back in the prisons? No, do you have fear, period? The only fear that I have today is awe and respect for God. And how do you, I hear a lot of Christians say that. What is the evidence you have that type of fear? How do you know you have that? Because with every situation, I go to him for counsel. And, and it takes certain tests and trials and tribulations in our life to keep us humble. And one of the things that I think happens to me is, is that I keep going back to the prisons. And every time I go, I say, God, don't ever let me forget the sound of those doors clowning behind me. Don't ever let me feel like I'm so free that I could never come back here. Keep me humble in thy kingdom. You know, the time is going by really fast for the segment. I want to go back to your father. Did you ever get to 
meeting your father once this change happened in your life? Yes, and the awesome thing is, uh, Jesse, is that at 87 years of age, when I got to meet my dad, I'd been out of prison about three years, and he had watched the ministry happen. I led my father to the Lord at 87 years old. Oh, great. <laughs> And so as he passed on out, he had smart. Yes, yeah. How about your mother? Did she see the change in you as well? Yes, seeing the change, and my entire family has come to know the Lord during all of my endeavors in prison. Is your mother still living? Yes. Have you been able to help her uh, in any way as far as her relationship with God? Absolutely. She has grown stronger and stronger in the Lord. Uh, she does a lot of day ministry and visiting, like nursing oh, yeah. homes. And She's 77 years old, and she takes care of people in their 80s and 90s and witnessing to them. And did she give up trying to get married? I mean, uh, the marriage she, stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, she got married to a, a really fine, wonderful man, and, uh, and oh, he okay. died of cancer here uh, about two and a half years ago. Michael, what's a, real, what's, the, what's a real man and what is his purpose? I think a real man is one that destines his life to walk in the, in the footsteps of Jesus. I think a real man is one who speaks the truth, is willing to listen and love, is willing to stand up for what's right and proclaim the truth, and be willing to confront everything that is of evil, darkness, or, or lie around him. And does he have a, 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 perfect, a purpose different from what you just said he is? No, I think all of us do. I think that's one of the things that happened in the camaraderie between you and I when we first met on the trip to Israel right. is that I respected you as a man because you stand up for what's right, you speak the truth, and nothing is foreign from confronting it. Why do you think that most men today uh, refuse to stand up for what is right? I don't think it's that they're scared. It's easier not to. The, the non-confrontational issue, it's just easier not to confront the issue. And they think that, well, it'll just go away. It doesn't go it doesn't, away. That's right. I notice that life is easier when I confront the issue. It's when I don't confront the issue that my life seems to be difficult. That's right. It's the other way around. I think there's a turning of the spirit that happens there. I think that when we don't confront something, even though in our conscious we think it's gone away, in our subconscious yeah. it's costly there. Um, we have 30 seconds left. How can people get a copy of your book and what's the title of it and uh, get in touch with Beyond the uh, Wall Ministry? It's From the Heart of Thunder to the Color of Grace. It's available here in the bookstore. It's available at Hastings Bookstores up in the Panhandle. And they can contact here at GLC or, or me at uh, Decker4BTW at AOL.com. I'd be happy to do it. I'm going to keep Michael over for a part two, so make sure you tune in for it. Thank you so much for tuning in and let me hear from you about your, your opinion about this show. Thank you, and God bless. Amen. Well. Welcome to the Jesse Lee Peterson Show. I am Jesse Lee Peterson. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, let me hear from you. We have a website that we're going to put up at the end of the program. I want to hear your, uh, uh, hear your uh, comments about the shows. If you have uh, guest suggestions, let me know about that. I would like to get them on. I'm doing a part two series today with Pastor Michael Decker. He is with Beyond the Wall Ministry, Prison Ministry. He has a great ministry going on uh, within the prison systems across the country. 
And uh, we're going to tell you more about uh, how to get Micah's book. He has a great, great book out right now as well. Micah, um, I don't want to go back into the things we talked about the other day. I want to pick up and go uh, uh, further. If people want to, we'll do a replay on this show or something. Okay. If people want to see the first half of the program. I, um, and I appreciate you staying over with me as well. I want to talk more about uh, the purpose of a man because I've noticed that that is not understood in society today. Uh, can you kind of briefly tell us again what is his purpose? Well, I think one of the greatest things to understand uh, and one of the things that we try to teach in, in prison ministry is uh, most of the men in prison, most of the women in prison, have never been around a godly man. Right. They've never been around a man that stands up for truth and for right. They've never been around with somebody that's willing to work for a living. Uh, they've never been around from somebody that's probably not been around drugs and alcohol. And this includes their fathers, brothers, uncles, and everything. All the males in their family. Right. Absolutely. And one of the keys, I think, is understanding that God's Word is very precise, it's very exact, and it tells us how to live our lives. It tells us how to walk, how to speak, how to work, how to provide for our family. He gives us the order up from God to man to family, that the man is to be the covering for the family, that he's to be the provider for the family. Yes. He's supposed to be the spiritual director of the family. Yeah. And that the woman is to take care of the home, that she's to take care of the children, that the man and the woman together come in unity, they two become one, but the spiritual head of the family is the man. You know, that is so important. Um, when I read Genesis, I, I see that order of God and Christ, Christ and man, man over woman and woman over children. And whenever the man is not there, given that spiritual uh, aspect of life, it seems as though that's when the family fall apart for the most part. Because um, I, I think that most I don't hear a lot of preachers talking about how important it is that the woman and children are under the father, you know, including their father or the husband so they can get that guidance. Why, why is it that they're not talking about that as much today? I think one of the reasons is they're not going to the exact word of God. And when God says you will follow under my pinions means that his, he is the covering over right. and the father is to be the protector and provider. Um, and spiritual covering for the home, they're not following the exact Word of God. I hear a lot of people, uh, especially in the world, say uh, a father is needed to you know, buy food, give money, pay the rent. And a lot of men think just because they are doing that now that they are real men. But I say to them, that doesn't really make you a real man because no. the government can bring food and money, but you need to be there so you can protect, uh, right. uh, cover, that family. Yeah, and it's and protection and covering is not just physical. That's right. It has to be it's spiritual spir and spiritual. emotional as well. I mean, you've got to be able to be there to be the strength of the home and to discipline a child, but you've got to also be able to love him. That's right. That you you may uh, wear his bottom out, but after you're done, you need to sit and talk to that young man or woman and put your arm around him and tell him why that took place and why it's important that they follow these rules and regulations. And you may want to correct me on this, but I believe that uh, in seeing a parent's home, uh, because that order is broken, the father is not there to give that spiritual uh, enlightenment, and uh, the mother cannot do it. And that's another reason a lot of these boys and girls are going out committing crime, you know, they're looking for love. Because in that spiritual, in that, 
and that spirituality that comes from the man, you get love, you get uh, guidance, you get understanding, you know, you see how to resist the devil for the most part. A lot come from that. And the mothers can't provide that because of the order of God. Am I right about it? Well, I think that's true because the mother was meant to be the mother. She wasn't meant to be the mother and father. Right. And truly, she takes on a dual role in a single parent home. Uh, many of the single uh, women that have multiple children, especially, work two jobs or three jobs. Right. They're not at home. The children have more freedom to go and do whatever they'd like to do. Moms are so tired by the time they get home, the kids are sneaking out and they don't know it, yeah. and so forth. And it's easier for them to just like pretend that's not going on rather than deal with it and confront it because that was the man's position. That's right, and a lot of mothers, because of that order, uh, they are looking for a good man. You know, they, they go from, some of them go from man, you know, men to men or man to man because they're looking for exactly what the kids need. It's a father's love, you know, a man, uh, uh, and when I say father, it could be a husband, but his love is coming from God, you know, right. and passed on to her. So they are looking for something that they need too. They, most of the time they end up getting the wrong type of man, but they need that as well. Right, I think it, there is the key factor with God. When God is in a family, in a, in a, in a dual parent situation or a single parent situation, Aloneness doesn't mean loneliness. And that's so, right. And so many women right. think that some company is better than no company. And that's not true. That's not true. That is absolutely right. Um, what is uh, love? A lot of people say, I love the Lord. Uh, they say, I love my children. I love this and I love that. But when you look at their actions, well, when I look at their actions, I don't see love. What is love? Love is an unconditional attraction from man to woman, from man to God, from, from friend to friend that unconditionally is willing to listen and provide counsel, is, is willing to unconditionally be there and support. It's that, that person in your life that doesn't say I love you at 5 in the afternoon and at 2 o'clock in the morning when you have an emergency say, well, call me back tomorrow. Right. It's that person that's willing to go the extra mile. It's, it's God always being there in that position of, of that extra mile. It's, it's allowing a feeling in our heart of camaraderie and of, of interchange of words and actions that make a, a, truly a bond one to another. When somebody loves you, they interchange with your feelings and your thoughts. And, and true love doesn't always agree with you. Right, I was going to say, it doesn't mean you have to accept uh, the wrongdoing of the person you know, you don't accept it, you just don't resent them for it. Right. You know, you be honest about it and try to show them how to overcome. You know, and this is one of the biggest mistakes uh, most of the men and women, a mistake that I made most of my life in, in doing uh, crime and in prison, is that we have to realize that we must be accountable one to another. Right. Not just be friends, but we have to be accountable. And, and a friend is somebody that confronts. If you're not That's confronting right. somebody when you see something wrong, That's right. you're killing them. That's right. You know, a lot of people say, well, Jesus loved me, and he does, but he doesn't love us as we are. He always tried to get us to change, turn away from our wicked ways toward God. And, but there's this notion out there now that he loves us, and he loves us as we are. I don't think that's true. I don't either. You know, and I think this is one of the reasons why even so many times in the Bible, if we look at the prophecy and the prophetic statements that Christ made, 
when he was confronted with a situation they were looking to find excuse to kill him or to criticize him and so forth. He always spoke in wisdom in a way that not only answered their question but made them realize the truth. And I think that's what we need to do. We don't have to go browbeat uh, right. our friends, but that's we right. have to confront them in truth and allow them to have that understanding that will carry them into the fullness of God. A lot of preachers are now teaching that God loves us as we are. You know, I've tried to get ministers to get involved with us to help do something about abortion, you know, because so many, especially the black community, so many women are having abortions uh, or about homosexuality, and they'll tell me, well, you know, God created them and God loves us. Who am I to complain about it? But I, I don't see how you could be a man of God and not desire that that person change. Right. And I think one of the things there, Jesse, is, is this, is that God does love us. Yeah, he, he does. Loves, he loves us all. Yeah. But what he does is he accepts us all as we are, and he shows us through his word that we are to change in accordance with his word, yes. not stay as we are. Yes. Let me ask you about God's word. Um, there's this notion that God's word is limited to the Bible. I believe that God's word is in the Bible, but also written in our hearts. Uh, and because you can't always carry the Bible around with you, right? And you're going to always need his instruction, his guidance, his protection, his warning, so that you don't fall into a trap. Um, why do you believe that God's word is also in our heart? Absolutely. He said that the word made flesh. Yeah, and I think that's one of the areas where the more we study and the more we pray, the more that we understand to not only speak forth prayer, but to listen. Yeah. You know, uh, as many people have heard me say before, we have one of these and two of these. So when we pray to God for 10 minutes, we need to listen to Him for 20 minutes. That's right. And when we begin to truly know that audible and audible voice, then our finite understanding and His omnipotence come into a bond where we really begin to understand He is speaking through us yes. and to us. And when we are in situations and the Bible's in the car or the Bible's at home, we're still able to call on His presence in our heart and speak forth his truth. Um, uh, the Bible talks about uh, his voice being a quiet, still voice. And I noticed that there are two voices that can go on within us. The voice in our head, which is of the devil, right. constantly trying to deceive us. And a lot of times it sounds like our own voice, you know, just anything to deceive us. But also there's a knowing, a voiceless voice. It's like you know you know without really knowing how you know it just it's clear to you right and a lot of people can't distinguish the two voices well i think like the word says in jeremiah god not only brought gentle rain he also brought thunder and lightning yes and we must understand that sometimes when on a hot day he gives us a gentle breeze in the same consequence sometimes he blows that wind at 300 miles an hour and causes a 100 foot tidal wave to come across the land and it's in that dimension, that diverse dimension of God that we understand the truth of how we are to proclaim His Word. There are times that we're to speak it gently, and there are times that we're to proclaim right. it with energy, um, for He calls us all to be a warrior. That's right. I, I want to ask something else that's popping in my head here. I notice in society today that if you speak the truth, uh, and, and this is by a lot of Christians too, instead of... A, a, the hearer appreciating it, they, they tend to want to get angry at you and call names. You know, they call me a woman hater. Or if I talk about black folks, I'm a black hater or homosexual, I'm a homosexual hater. 
uh, why do Christians, after reading the Bible, refuse to accept the truth about themselves? You know, if I talked about men, then I have no problem with the women. And if I talked about women, then I have no problem with the men. But women don't want to be talked about, period. Why is it like that in the Christian community? I think in the Christian community, people project their uncomfortableness and the things that are wrong in their life onto others so that they don't have to deal with it themselves. I also think that in the Christian community that um, it is carnivorous. That we, when somebody makes a mistake in the Christian community, we attack them. Yes. I mean, yeah. I know in your ministry there's been times you've made a mistake. There's been times in my ministry that I've made a mistake. And I mean, literally, you can take <laughs> four, five, six years of ministry, and in five minutes it can be destroyed. Yes, that is so true. Of somebody's opinion. And what we must realize is when the truth is coming forth, when we know it's a message from God to tell us to change, we need to change. Yes. And when the truth is coming forth, we should be standing up and saying hallelujah rather than going like, well, who does he think he is or she is? That's right. And when that message is coming from God, we know it's coming from God because it's moving us at a place not in our mind. It's in our heart and yeah. in our spirit. And we know it's God saying, behold, I stand at the door and I'm telling you to change what's going on. Why is it uh, it takes uh, a lifetime to build a life or ministry but it takes a second to destroy it. I think there again, the reason is, is because people are looking at life from the world's perspective and not from God. So, that He tells us to look, to look at life as we're looking through Jesus' eyes, His Son. He tells us to go through life in speaking truth, that His mercy and His grace abound. But what takes place is, is people use anything they possibly can. It's the reason why the news, the national news, is full of nothing but negativity. There's yeah. no positive. It's not like this took place and this was great and this was great. It's like this, this death, this bomb, this, this atrocity of life. And until we begin to focus on the Word of God and allow it to minister to our soul and for it to resurrect in us a new way of living, this will continue. So it's easier for people to believe a lie rather than believe the truth. Absolutely. It's harder to believe the because truth. Because they don't have to deal with it. Uh, forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is being able to forgive an act or a deed and truly, like God, forget. Not just say, surface, I forgive you, right. but to truly forget it. For, for the, the voice of forgiveness to come forth in such a way that the act of forgiveness shows love and understanding. And, and like the Word of God says, He says, don't forgive seven times, 70 times seven. Right. And I think that's too many times in the Christian community, especially people who feel like they've been offended, they carry that grudge for life. They do. Literally. And they need to know this, and this, this is absolutely a word from the Lord that He spoke to my heart. If you go to the grave, you may know the Lord, but I truly think if you have unforgiveness in your, unresolved forgiveness in, in your heart, don't be thinking that you've got an automatic ticket into heaven. I agree. I believe I tell that. people all the time, you don't want to drop your body and you have not forgiven. You're not going to go where you think that you're going to go. I absolutely agree. And so many people hold anger toward their parents, toward the violator of their lives, uh, toward themselves. I mean, and they'll carry it through life, uh, only deceiving themselves. How does one know when they need to forgive? Anytime there is animosity or ill feeling towards someone, forgiveness needs to come. Anytime. And, and most often, don't 
ask God for forgiveness when you haven't gone and spoken to that person that you need to forgive. That's right. Because that's, he won't forgive you until you forgive. That, his word says that. That's right. And when you have an issue with a man, don't tell somebody else about it. Go tell the man himself. Go to the person. Right. And in the Lord's Prayer, it even says, forgive us our trespassers as we forgive. And so as you're forgiving others, God will forgive you. Absolutely. A lot of in people, my life, I had a tremendous amount of forgiveness given to me, and I had to forgive too. But Was it hard for you to forgive? I think that was a greatest step for me is to go and begin to say I'm sorry. And, and I spent the first year out of prison trying to think of everybody <laughs> I need to say I'm sorry to. And, and I know there's a lot of people that I didn't go and say that to that I couldn't remember. Right. But I mended many, many fences and many bridges. Were there one person or, uh, uh, that was, it was harder for you to go to and forgive? Not really. Uh, it was just an act of obedience to God. I think the hardest person for me was my mother, you know, because I knew I had to go to her and forgive her, but the devil was telling me, you got to hurt her feelings, uh, you got to make her feel bad, she's going to cry or she's going to go off on you. And it was like the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. It was easier with my father than it was for my mother. And I, I know now it's because she had a greater impact on my life, yeah. you know, by raising me and yeah, stuff like in, that. In that perspective, I, I totally agree with that because forgiving my dad was like, Dad, I forgive you for right. all the times you weren't there. And, right. And let's go to the Lord. And, and I'll never forget that morning. I mean, I, God says, today you'll go lead your father to the Lord. And when I knelt at his feet, I was, he had some sores on his legs from diabetes, 87 years old. And I knelt before him, and I was washing those sores and helping him uh, put the ointment on him. And God said, now's the time. And I looked right in his eye, and I said, Dad, <laughs> today's the day that you go to meet Jesus and know him as your personal Savior and ask him in your life. And he looked at me and he goes, he used to call me Hoss. He goes, well, Hoss, will you help me say that prayer? That's beautiful. And then at 87 years old, he only lived about another eight months, but he led 16 other people to the Lord in that period really? of time. That was fast. Absolutely. He was on fire. Did you have to go to your mother and forgive her? Yes, and, and I, I knew that there was an act of forgiveness that had to take place between my mother and father. Yeah. And so one of the days when I took him to the hospital, God said, today's the day. He says, you call your mom. And, of course, she was married at the time, but she came to the hospital, and the two of them, um, after all the years of animosity that was still there, uh, we all said a prayer, and they looked in one another's eyes and said, you know, I'm sorry for this, and I'm sorry for that. And it was, it was such a, a transformation, not just in my dad, but, but I didn't realize it would be so strong in my mom. Yes. My, uh, my mother did the same thing. My mother hated my father, and she didn't want anything to do with him. And I kept telling her, you know, you got to go and forgive him. You, you know, you don't want to die with this hatred toward my father. You have to forgive him. And she refused to do it. And so finally she decided to, and she called him up and said, you know, I've been hating you all my life and I'm sorry. And one month later she died. She had a heart attack. Mm. And I was so glad that she did that before, you know, she died. It was amazing how there was something within her that caused her to do it. She just got up and had a heart attack. She, had, she was not ill or anything, and she was able to do it. So I was happy about that. Amen. Michael, are you able to see yourself and, and to know what type of person you really are? I think so. Uh, more and more, and there again, my reflection is when I go to the Word. When, I, when I'm living the life I need to live, right. uh, as I read the Word, I have understanding and a peace. And if there's an issue in my life that's not of God, it needs to be handled and not put on the back burner. Because one of the things that, that festers uh, 
in a Christian is when there's something wrong until it's yeah. completed, that fester becomes a sore and the sore becomes a wound and the wound becomes a tumor and the tumor begins to eat at you. That's right. And it pulls you farther and farther away from the Word and farther from your quiet time, farther from your acts of obedience. And I, I encourage everybody out there, when the, there is an issue that needs to be taken care of, don't wait. Go and confront Take it. Confront it. the issue. Talk right. to the person. Make sure that you, you make it settled because your life will be so much fuller. Uh, a lot of people are not able to see themselves because of their pride. You know, pride is of the devil. Uh, Adam uh, uh, and uh, believed the woman who believed the devil. And once they believed them, they became prideful people. And the pride separated them from God. And as a result, they couldn't see themselves. And I notice that most people are not able to see themselves because of their pride. And when you see yourself as you are, it's not a pretty sight. And everybody want to be God. They want to look good, right? Um, one of the things I try to do is to get people to examine themselves, to be honest about themselves. And the pride gets in the way. Do you ever deal with that with them? I think one of the greatest, that's one of the, my favorite scriptures uh, is Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life ransom for many. Yes. And I think every day we should make a conscious effort, and I try to do this, to do something in, in humble servanthood, to, to out of the ordinary do something. And it's kind of like that movie that uh, the little boy was in a couple of years ago called Pay It Forward. <laughs> and, and that act of servanthood is something, and somebody says, well, what can I do for you? And, and God always puts it on my heart. Tell him, pay it forward, don't pay it back. <laughs> That's right. As a pastor, are you straight up and honest with people? I tell them the truth. Even and if you know they're going to scream about it or they may like you or dislike you for it. That's right. There's a lot of times that I go into churches around the country as I'm preaching and I bring forth a word that they haven't seen. <laughs> uh, they're used to an 18 to 22 minute sermon. Yeah. And mine don't last that long. Right. They mostly last an hour, hour and a half. <laughs> but the, the truth... Uh, takes not only proclamation, uh, it takes standing on, and it takes understanding, and it takes study. That when, you're, when you hear something from the pulpit that you're unsure of, go to the Word and search it out. Yeah. And if it's not of the Word, go to your pastor and tell him, why did you do this? Do you appreciate it when people come to you and say, Michael, I think you're wrong about this, or you, why did you do this? Do you appreciate when people confront you? I really do because when they confront me, I have to deal with the issue, number one. That's right. Number two, many times I've got to go back to the Word and study it. Yes. And, and maybe I have made a mistake in what I've said or, or the way that I've acted. And if I have, then I confess that before God and I go and ask for their forgiveness and I ask to go on in life. How do you feel when people dislike you because you told them the truth? That's an issue between them and God. You, have no, you feel nothing about it. No. That's beautiful. Because I'm going to keep on telling them the truth. What type of person are you? How, how, how would you describe yourself? Uh, very strong-willed, uh, very focused. Uh, try to do everything I do to the, to the ultimate. I mean, if I need to work, I'm going to work. I mean, if I'm building a house, I'm going to build a house. <laughs> um, I don't mind coming to work at 5 in the morning, and I don't mind not going to bed till midnight. I don't mind working seven days a week. Um, sometimes I'm overzealous uh, with what I feel about God. Uh, to some people, but to me, I, I'm exactly what God would have me be as far as every opportunity that comes in life, make it a ministry opportunity. What is overzealous? What do you mean by that? Uh, 
too convinced that his way is the only way. Some people perceive that, you know, there has to be a little relaxation in life. Oh, I see. And I don't think there's any deviation in the word. What the word says is the way that we're to live. What the word says is the way that we're to speak and we're to work, the way that we're to provide for our families. I think that we need to begin across America and around this earth, but especially in America, people need to stand up. Don't let one or two people go to court and change and take prayer and God out of school. That's right. We need to take one or two million and say, no, it won't be that That's way, right. and go to the courts and begin to change it and put prayer back in school. When, when a, a homosexual activity is in a church and suddenly a church system, a church a belief, uh, says that I'm going to have a, a homosexual as a bishop in my church. You better all leave that church and let them go to hell. I could agree with you more. Um, uh, and how do you know when you're overzealous with, we have one minute left, how do you know when you're overzealous with people? Do they say something to you about it or you can sense it or how do you know? You kind of sense it and, and I may back off a little bit in fervor and let <laughs> them speak, but then I'm coming right back in the door. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, what's your book about, your name, your, the title of your book, and what is it about? It's The Heart of Thunder to the Color of Grace. It's uh, my autobiography talking about my life growing up and through organized crime and coming to know the Lord, and it's available here in the bookstore and on my website at decker4btw at aol.com. And the title of the book again? From the Heart of Thunder to the Color of Grace. How can people get in touch with you, uh, I mean, with uh, Beyond the Wall Prison Ministry? They can call me uh, at 806-674-5141 or at my box address, P.O. Box 866, Canyon, Texas, 79015. And you go to any prisons. I'll go anywhere. Thank you, Michael, for coming in. Amen. All right. Thank My name is Jesse Lee Peterson. I'm founder and president of a nonprofit organization, BOND, the Brotherhood Organization of a New Destiny. And our purpose is to rebuild the family by rebuilding the man. You can reach us at 1-800-411-2663, 1-800-411-2663, or, or at our website, www dot bondinfo dot org b-o-n-d-i-n-f-o dot o-r-g we're 13 years old we're not a uh, governmental organization we're a private nonprofit organization and i believe in the perfect order of god in christ christ in man man over woman and woman over children it is a spiritual battle that we're fighting not blacks against whites or whites against blacks but good versus evil Right versus wrong, I'm committed to rebuilding a family by rebuilding a man. For an audio or video copy of this program, please call or write the address on the screen. Please include the program number when ordering.